0: Four. I'm, I'm gonna, gonna be a leader lead.
1: Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Championship Leadership Podcast. And uh, I'm excited. We got Roger Sparks here from Eagle River, Alaska. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm excited to uh, talk with you. Yeah. So, you know, I, I ran across your book in Barnes and Nobles, actually, and just, I don't know, I just saw the cover. And every now and then, if, as I'm looking for interesting people to talk to and guests and you uh, yours stood out, so I, I took a picture of it, Reached, uh, found you, reached out to you, reached out to you, you know, a number of times, as I do to many people, just uh, because I know everybody's lives are busy. And so I'm excited to have you. Uh, just finished up your book and an uh, incredible story. His book, Warrior's Creed, A Life Preparing For and Facing the Impossible. But before we get too far into any of that, I do like to ask this question first. The name of the podcast is Championship Leadership what comes to mind for you or what what does that mean to you when you hear championship leadership
2: yeah yeah um you know i studied uh, your podcast before i came on i knew you were gonna ask me this <laughs> and uh you know it actually had me kind of spinning i was like wow you know what i mean because when you approached me early on about doing it i'm like championship leadership i mean it totally makes sense but at the same time it kind of uh really forced me to kind of look at my life i'm like well why is nate approaching me about this and and what value can i give you know his his listeners you know in in my perspectives i guess you know and initially you know when i i, I, I thought about it, you know a championship you know immediately recalls in my mind you know sports you know and yeah. so leadership within sports or competitive leadership uh is kind of what i thought of but you know, my entire life, uh, for 25 years, I was in active duty military, in particular in special operations. And there's nothing, it's not sports, you know, it's kind of like you're dealing in life and death. And so the leadership involved, you know, within the career fields that I've had in special operations, it, uh you know it's it's based off of virtue you know it's it's really about risk and uh selflessness you know and yeah. and uh, so you know as far as the championship leadership you know i mean obviously there's no higher stakes game in the world than than combat uh but uh i think that uh that's one of the things that attracted me to the military and special operations was just uh severe circumstances and and trying to understand exactly what it is that uh that you are you know championing with with the subject matter of of your podcast you know i mean i've i've spent a lifetime thinking about these things a lifetime you know uh where the rubber meets the road with this stuff and and uh it's not something i take lightly but i think that uh you know championship leadership i think it's it's to me i just it's it's i feel like i've got a masters degree in this stuff but it's really just you know it's it's Virtue and selflessness, you know, and I think that in a world where people are building brands and so many things are are pulling us in different directions, uh, that can get lost. But you know, true leadership, you know, starts with service and selflessness. And I think that uh, you know, people that are trying to build brands for themselves, it, it, it can they can get lost in the facts uh, where their ego begins to drive things. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, in a very pragmatic world of combat and special operations, it starts with virtue and selflessness, you know I mean? So uh, to me, I mean, you know, thinking about those things, you know, in, in a business sense, or even like in, like an amazing coach, you know, an amazing uh, athletic coach, you know, there's, I'm sure there's selfless, all those things, it's, it's all those things are gonna carry over again, and just in the military, uh, context it's just much more extreme you know but uh yeah. yeah i think just you know selflessness any of those greek virtues you could throw in there but uh i've always kind of viewed myself i guess to get into this i i, I absolutely love eastern mythology and uh i love uh different terms like uh you know to Bodhisattva, someone you know basically to stop my growth in an ability to help others grow from my experiences. You know, and so most of my military career I've, I've consciously chosen to place myself in a situation where I'm somewhat of a Bodhisattva for those that I'm leading or in direct contact with. And uh it's it's served me well. I mean, and again, you know, talking about you know military special operations, uh, you know, guys can smell bullshit a mile away. You know, yeah. and unless you're willing to have skin in the game, and and give, you know, we always looked at it as a checking account. You know, like like your experience and your your respect level was based off of how much you've given to that career field, how much you're willing to sacrifice yourself and and the things that you care about for the mission that that you're involved in, and uh, that can get pretty unbalanced at times. Uh, but you know, and it takes years. Uh, to gain perspective from those things, but I think that uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've, I've always kind of chosen that service in a subtle way. You know, I've never been trying to do an ego dance myself to where it's like, hey, check me out. You know, this is I'm doing this. Uh, it's always been about I'm trying to support the people I'm with. I'm trying to uh, you know, my intentions are that I'm just trying to grow physically. You know in in spiritually and metaphysically and that's why i'm involving myself in these things and i and i don't think i've ever been afraid of change you know like allowing experiences to change me and uh you know the book itself you know the, the warriors creed book was really a, a a product of serendipity the whole book deal kind of landed in my lap and i jumped on it i was just recently retiring and so uh, it became very cathartic for me to attempt to gain perspective from my decades in special operations to just try to assimilate, well, what value did those experiences have beyond me just doing them, you know? And so I've been, been asked for uh, on multiple occasions to be like a guest speaker to share my experiences with other special operations units not only from one uh, that was pretty notable in 2010, uh, where I was awarded the Silver Star for that, but the, uh, many others before. And, and uh, you don't have to receive a, a medal to have a significant story or wisdom to impart to people, uh, but that definitely did give me a platform to, um, I guess, uh, attempt to articulate wisdom from surviving violence, I guess.
1: Oh, i love it yeah it's uh thank you it's a very in depth de- definition or explanation of what leadership championship leadership is for you and you know some of the things that really st- stood out to me as i was listening to the book listening to you tell a story your story was yeah that you there was like you talked about, I believe the Hagakuri, is that right? Am I saying that correctly? And just Yeah, like, I mean, it's,
2: it's a Japanese translation, but the Hagakuru or the Hagakuri, okay. you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah and, uh, and just a lot of the like uh, Eastern, uh, what do you call it, mythology or?
2: Yeah, just any, you know, just the, the ideology, you know, Eastern Ideologies. ideology. And, well, yeah. Where did, where did that
1: come from for you? Like, because you talk, you really reference and talk a lot of quotes and a lot of, A lot of references inside of the book to that and how you live your life and and how you would train others as when you were you know talking about the different times that you were training other uh marine recon guys and um and the just the leadership aspects of that and how it really plays a part in your life was that always
2: something there that uh i've always sought i guess uh higher wisdom uh when i was a young boy i was always attracted to I mean, I know this sounds really bizarre. I mean, but uh, I mean, like even at a young age of like 15, 16, I would read. And I grew up, I mean, in the 70s, you know, 70s, 80s, you know, yeah. I'm old, man. And uh, I would read uh, old yoga text, trying to understand what's the benefit of yoga or meditation. And I'm like 15, blue collar as it gets family, uh, in the 70s and 80s reading this stuff, trying to understand just a little insight into my uh, upbringing, you know, uh, you know, I, 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 I experienced significant debilitating knee pain as a kid and I kind of overcome, overcame a lot of those obstacles. Uh, and I think that, that dealing with that at a young age really kind of shaped my, my life, you know, to where it was just injustice and, uh, you know, dealing with all of uh, the circumstances of, I guess, feeling isolated or alone, uh, and, in pain during adolescence, I think that that uh, really made me extremely self sufficient but also I think i it forced me to seek greater wisdom and I guess just in mortality and like the way that uh, humanity is like human consciousness or it forced me really deeply inside myself to understand or begin to you know search for meaning through effort i guess and uh you know, there's two types of people in the world. There's people that blame others or outside circumstances or people that blame themselves. And I've always very much so been a person that has, if something's wrong, I'll blame myself, you know, and I always try to work within my sphere of influence, uh, attempting to either strengthen uh, my perspective, my resolve or my intentions in certain areas. And so it was just uh, almost like every day I wake up and I try to figure out, well, how can I make myself stronger, faster, smarter, you know? And, uh, and it's a very personal thing. And I don't, I don't share it with other people, but you know, I'm the guy that'll wake up early and and exercise. I mean, I'm in my late forties right now. And every day, I mean, I'll exercise to where I taste blood in my mouth, you know? And it's like, I enjoy moving my body. I enjoy feeling the limits of my mortality, uh, physically. And, uh, it's, that, that started at a very early age. And again, I didn't, I wasn't ever really, I never studied, you know, uh, early Japanese mythology or ideology. It was just at some point I kind of like all paths lead to the summit. You know, it's like birds of a feather flock together. At some point in your life, you become surrounded by people of your same liking and, and, uh, that was definitely early on in my marine reconnaissance career and uh i met a young uh reconnaissance guy by the name of Rudy Reyes who's a uh he's a big fitness spokesperson now uh, he's kind of a force of his own uh but uh i was his instructor and uh, basically he turned me on to the Hagakuri and uh different specific texts that were extremely enlightening to me and like i said i'd, I'd read just about every indigenous culture warrior practice, and I was implementing that in the guys that I was training. But to meet someone that was very passionate and aligned with, I guess, my own ideology that I kind of cultivated for myself was, I guess, very, very affirming. It was very powerful. And so him and I became very close friends. And I just kind of, I guess, again, it was just reassuring to know that other people had thought these same things and felt these same things that I was doing. And this is like by thousands of years, you know, it's just like this human experience. And, and I enjoyed that. And, uh, as I became, uh, more and more experienced with mortal environments in direct combat, those words of wisdom in in those ancient texts really just reverberated even stronger because in those times like just like there's that analogy of there's no there's no atheist in a foxhole well that's that's a really significant generalization yeah but i believe that uh when one when people experience those things you you have to find answers like you're forced to try to assimilate or gain perspective from those experiences and To read some of those texts, it was just kind of like slightly above my understanding. You know, When you survive surreal combat, you'll ask yourself, it's kind of like if you were in a car wreck and everybody in your family, everybody in your family was in the car with you, like your your wife and your kids were in the car, and you were involved in an accident, head-on collision, rollover accident, and everyone died in the car. As horrible as that sounds, you would always blame yourself because you lived and they died. Mm-hmm. And so you're forced trying to understand those moments. Like, was that an act of God? Uh, what is God? Uh, where, if God did this, why did this happen? Why am I alive? Like, you asked yourself these questions. And, and, and that's because what happened, you, you can never process those moments because what happened was surreal. It was, you can t- try to pragmatically separate those things, but, but in reality, There's metaphysics involved. You know, there's, there's intentions have their own gravity, like whatever your intentions are with what you're doing, have a form of its own gravity. And you can see that in just the success that someone has in a simple thing. For instance, like if someone wants to draw a picture and they want to draw a really good picture, but they're trying to draw that picture to get people to stroke them and say, oh, you're such a great artist. Well, that intention has no virtue in it. And so you're probably gonna fall flat on your face, but if you're drawing to attempt to articulate something deep inside you that really has to come out, because that intention has virtue, it's going to have grip, it's gonna have power, and there's gonna be a gravity to that. And, and apply that same you know, thought process to combat or violence, And it's very similar like like when you try to explain like how certain people survive or how people die and i guess to come way back to where when you first asked me the question that the eastern mystics understood that you know early bushido in samurai culture understood those intentions are the purest thing in battle like i think there's a quote and i'll butcher these you know because i'm just you know throwing them off of my memory but uh there's a specific quote that i guess you know kind of symbolizes this but uh and it's something as simple as if you wish to not be killed in battle it will not be so if you wish to be slain by the greatest of enemy it might be and so it's like it's saying about you know your intentions like if you're just trying to survive combat well you're the guy that's probably going to get everybody killed and you're probably gonna be the guy that gets killed you know so but when you are doing your best and you're doing it selflessly that has a gravity to it and i've always been very i guess intrigued with that you know just that the subtle the subtle things in life have dramatic power and i've always just been extremely attracted to that and at times you know like i feel like i'm kind of alone in these these thoughts and again like the more surreal our experiences in life the more isolating they are you know and and i think that's the problem with a lot of people that survive significant trauma, is that trauma has a way of isolating you. And I think that the way through that is to try to find creative process to close that gap, you know, to attempt to close the gap from our traumas and share our experiences. And it doesn't have to be like these graphic portrayals of what we went through, but more it could be even analogies of Of what we experienced as a way to express them, you know, and I think that's I think the lesson of my story and and, and uh, my resolve and intentions you know i mean it, it's just i'm I'm attempting to express the experiences of my life so I can sail home to myself in some way you know yeah uh, but uh, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> I don't want to go too far off tangents, but all these questions really lead down a really crazy path.
1: No, I love it. I love it. So thank you. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. What's, uh, you know, it, as I think I had this thought as, we were, as we're sitting here just around, around leadership and because you have very, you went through marine reconnaissance, you went to, and, and I apologize, I don't remember the exact uh, terminology, the, the French legionnaire, is that right?
2: Yeah, so uh, French commando training in French Polynesia.
1: Commando training. So you, you go through that um, as a Marine. Um, and then, of course, you, and then you go on um, for about half of your career as a PJ in the Air Force. And and maybe can you talk a little bit, because I know in the book you, you talked about in the Air Force as, a, uh, as you're going through the training for PJ, you kind of make it through the INDOC, and then it seems like they continue to be pretty hard and almost to the point where, like, in a way, not being great leaders, you know, and it, and it really, the comment of how it really kind of tainted you and yeah, up yeah. to leadership later on, but, but maybe to just, and then the, the uh, French commando training, how different that was and, and uh, going through that and some of the, sto- the, the first story where they're raising the flag and he raises it upside down and, the guy <laughs> <knocks him out. laughs> and uh, some of the things that you went through there. you got to be probably one of, the only man out there that's gone through all three of those in your military career, I would imagine. Uh, and so some unique experiences again, there for you, maybe you could talk a little bit about the different experiences that you had.
2: Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's an interesting perspective. I've never really thought of, um, but, uh, so, you know, I I was raised in somewhat of a biker culture and, uh, all of my father's, uh, dearest friends were Vietnam veterans and uh being an impressionable young man these guys really had an effect on me and again there was just something metaphysical about the courage they exhibited in their character like they might have been operating outside of the law with the things that they were doing but there was something extremely powerful like there was something there were stronger character you know character traits in them than say like my teachers or Uh, public officials that I'd met as a young man or even doctors or these things that like society would say are upstanding, you know, goals to attain these, you know, nasty, you know, uh, criminal bikers, they had more character in them than what I saw there. So, you know, everything was never really black and white to me. It was like, everything was in the gray area. Yeah, uh, But I definitely grew up romanticizing through these colorful stories that they would tell me through their experiences about reconnaissance Marines. And uh, so I joined the Marine Corps as a way out and I wanted to get out of the small town I was in. And so as a young man, I just once I, as I recovered from this extremely debilitating knee injury, I would uh, train myself all the time. And again, this is like 15 years old, uh, meditating, yoga, weightlifting running with water in my mouth just like the ancient young you know apache and navajo you know uh would-be warriors would do uh i would do all these different techniques trying to cultivate something of value inside myself and so i joined the marine corps i was a grunt which is really trippy right now my son is going he's in the marine corps right now my oldest son is in the marine corps going through uh marine corps infantry training right now which is completely surreal to experience you know just even going back to marine corps recruit depot in san diego like the last time i was there was (laughs) myself graduating so and he's so similar to me i mean he looks he's like my clone yeah so trippy that's trippy but yeah um not to get off topic but marine corps infantry training is about as real as it gets as far as when people think of the military you know i mean it's you are You you know, you live, eat and breathe weapons, machine guns, hiking, you're around 30 men all the time. And so you have kind of like those prison dynamics on top of uh, a mortal medium that you're trying to understand and and become virtuous in. So uh, that was where it all started for me. And then, uh, again, my goal was to go into reconnaissance in the Marine Corps, which is uh, a pretty high atonement for a guy uh because then most of the military are non-combatants but the the marine corps prides itself on being somewhat of a a gritty infantry-esque like combatant service and so i mean almost everybody's seen full metal jacket it's like you get the picture you know it's like you know you have a lot of guys with uh uh you know growing up in trailer parks and they show up and they want to you know fight and so that's really the bone marrow of america but uh, i started i did a couple years in the marine corps infantry and i had to wait two years before i could try out for uh reconnaissance and i was so dedicated to this dream to get into reconnaissance my high school sweetheart that i went to uh, prom with which we're still married uh, we got married and they had a reconnaissance indoctrination the same week that we got married. And so I had to leave our honeymoon early to go try out for reconnaissance. And I mean, I, it's, it's, it's difficult to articulate someone, but I was either going to make it or I was going to die trying. I mean, yeah. that's how passionate. And I mean, very literally, you know, out of just exertion, I was going to kill myself. And uh, I made it. And I went through a program that's called R.I.P. In reconnaissance, uh, which is a uh, nine month program at the time where it stands for reconnaissance indoctrination process, and they basically turn you into a shaolin monk you know super commando and uh, they do that just through almost you know brutal methods of just selflessness and misery you know and I think that uh, again i i 've been projecting this this dream of mine since adolescence and so i mean you think say a solid say five to six years of cultivating those moments you know to do that and so um, it was extremely powerful for me to experience it i did make it through i went on to become a reconnaissance marine and had a pretty i guess an extremely colorful career as a reconnaissance marine uh i was then put on uh i was given the uh, the honor of training reconnaissance Marines, and I took it very, very, very seriously, uh, to the point I felt it was a religion, and uh, I gave my heart and soul to that. And uh, I feel like I've trained some of the best uh, reconnaissance Marines that have ever existed within the Marine Corps. Uh, during the same time that I was doing all that, the Marine Corps developed MARSOC, which is Marine Corps Special Operations Command, and Uh, just to understand how I guess reaching uh, my efforts have been the leadership of MARSOC at the highest levels of command, I trained all of those guys. And I mean, from the Sergeant Major of MARSOC to the Command Master Chief of the SART Corpsmen uh, within MARSOC and Force Reconnaissance, the guys that implement indirect policy now, like I trained them. So, and these were very non-standard training methods that I (laughs) I used on these guys. I mean, this is very indigenous uh, metaphysical stuff that I was doing with them, like attempting to get them to uh, control their body temperatures to teaching them meditative disciplines and stuff and all the things that I was really into. So it's almost like I had... uh, this captive audience that i could brainwash to my liking and i took it very seriously again to go back to this thing i never want to sound as if like i had my ego involved in it at all uh, i was doing this because i cared about the culture that i was a part of and i cared about having these men save their own lives or save lives of other men and so the transition from the marine corps to pararescue. Uh, the Marine Corps is really hard on families and uh, the Marine Corps is a very selfish bitch, you know, and, and uh, I gave 12 years of my life to it completely. But at the end of that, it was very difficult on my marriage. It was difficult just to maintain any balance, especially after 9-11. And, yeah. uh, you know, I knew after 9 the Marine Corps was going to deploy me uh, to either, you know, I quit or I was killed. You know, it's like the Marine Corps doesn't care. It's just about hookers turning tricks, especially at a time like after 9-11. And so I wanted to uh, focus on my family and gain some perspective from my experiences and uh, went back to Texas, uh, tried to get my feet under me, reconnected with my family and decided the best thing to do is to enter special operations once again because again, I've already done half of a military career in this stuff. And so to throw that away is difficult, you know?
1: Yeah, right.
2: And I mean, it's also very difficult. Like when you leave special operations, it's difficult because you realize much of the world is this strip mall soulless hell, you know? And and, And to be surrounded by metaphysical human beings that are willing to give their lives with you or for you uh, at a moment's notice, is, is that's intoxicating, especially to a young man in his physical prime. And so, I knew that I had to kind of reenter that in some capacity. And so, I joined uh, Pararescue. And I've I've always been interested in medicine. Again, as a young man, when I when I had those the debilitating knee injuries, uh, I was got. I would sit there and read Gray's Anatomy. You know, I mean, I was so into that. So, I mean, to get into Pararescue and to attempt to do things completely virtuous like you're doing all of these specific special operations skills to save or protect life save salvage or protect life and so it just seemed like the perfect perfect storm you know Um, i did have to go back through training so you know i left the marine corps i was you know highly respected in that career field and and that's not an easy career field to gain respect. You know, that's, it's, right. you have basically a lot of A-lister pipe hitters there, you know? And so, so it was almost as if I was walking away from everything, like I gave everything up to then be a student of another discipline. Um, now, the, the, the French Foreign Legion, the, the commando training I did with the French that you asked about, that was as, that was even while I was a grunt, that was as an infantryman. Okay. Yeah, that, so that training was very early on in my military career. And that shit was brutal, man. I mean, yeah, that was really I brutal. Stories you were telling were like... Yeah, yeah. And I, I had not experienced combat at that time, even though as a young man, I experienced a high level of violence in, in just the environment that I grew up in. But it was really eye-opening because the military is, especially in these times, you know, is extremely politically correct, you know? Yeah. And I think the further you get into, or the closer you get to combat, the less political correctness you experience. Uh, but I think that the French uh, legionnaire, like the commando training that I experienced was shocking because there was no political correctness and there was no safeties. You know, There was no, there was no wiping your chin, there was no, they had no care about us, you know, and, and they, were, they were kind of brutal in a way of just someone trying to mentor you in like, at like San Quentin in the 70s. You know, like, <laughs> it's, it's going to be a brutal tutelage that you go through. And, and I think that it was opening, eye-opening to me uh, as we were preparing to do the French commando training. I had a, a, a Staff Sergeant Alvarado, and he was a Force reconnaissance Marine that took us all in to train us. Uh, before we went and experienced these things in French Polynesia. And he was brutal, man. It was, it really mimicked what I went through in that recon indoctrination period. Uh, but it was even more severe because it was very directed at just you know, hardening the steel through fire. And and uh so I, I feel that all of those steps along the way really allowed, you know, those lessons, those, those very significant. Virtue lessons to be just beat into me to where it became part of my DNA. Yeah. And uh, having survived the, the, the Marine infantry, the, the French Polynesia commando training, the reconnaissance stuff, even becoming a reconnaissance uh, mentor and instructor and, and all of those things. Uh, one of my buddies said it best as I started going into the pararescue training, uh, my buddy Rudy Reyes says, Raj, that's going to be spiritual, man. Because here I am like, I'm basically developing and implementing policy uh, on how to train reconnaissance Marines and you know, very much so owning that environment to then giving everything up and then being a student of another discipline at a very Padawan or beginner level again. And it was very spiritual. Uh, I felt as if, I don't know if you've ever seen a movie. Uh, I think it's Robert De Niro is the actor in it. And it's called The Mission. Have you ever heard of that movie?
1: Yeah, I've heard of it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so,
2: yeah, this, this movie, and it's not tactical, The Mission. This guy is like a Spanish conquistador. Yeah. And what he does is he's in the slave trade. And he's a very, very good slave trader. But what ends up happening is, is kind of like his own attempt to sail home to himself he gets embedded in these tribal cultures and tries to find salvation. And he explains to them that he was selling their people into slavery. And so he kind of has to do his own version of redemption. And so they take all of his conquistador armor and they have him drag this shit through like triple canopy jungle, like on this vision quest thing. And uh, I was Robert De Niro in, (laughs) you know that circumstance you know attempting to go through pararescue training because here i was like even the instructors that were in charge of us didn't have the experience that i had in reconnaissance and so it was very humbling to just allow them to belittle me and and uh demean me and i mean this is intense stuff you know pararescue selection training at the time was called Indoc and these things are always going through adaptation. In fact, some of my best friends are now in charge of all that stuff. Like I said, I mean, the commandant uh, of that selection course is one of my dear friends that went through with me now. And so it's just, it's really bizarre, you know, to, to understand, you know, my position in all this, but. They, they can get away with a lot. You know, Air Force Special Operations is a very different than, I guess, say SEAL training or reconnaissance training or ranger training. They're all very similar. You know, they all use somewhat of the same modalities to attempt to select character. You know, to, and really it really boils down to resolve and intent. Like, mm-hmm. you're trying to select someone who is resolved beyond their mortality to do a specific job. And then you're trying to find someone with pure intentions. Like if you want someone that's just going to be this ego dance, you know, like, Oh, I'm a seal or I'm a PJ or I'm this. Yeah. You don't want that. You know, you want someone who's doing it selflessly that their intentions are very subconscious uh, and very pure, you know, and they're, and so those, all of those courses, whatever selection within special operations you go through, that's what they're attempting to do. They're just testing your resolve and your intent. And so. But I was really surprised at how pararescue got away with quite a bit. You know, I mean, yeah. they're all paramedics. So, yeah. like, you're in if you're in the pool, uh, the pool is is used almost in all special operations selection courses because you it's very easy to induce panic in people mm. in a pool, especially if you're you have them tied up or you're holding them underwater or something like that. It you can cause people to panic, and so what they're attempting to do is to see if okay, if I drowned you in the pool and I pull you out and resuscitate you and I throw you back in the pool, do you quit or not? So immediately you are testing someone's resolve. Like how resolved are you to do this? You know, are you, are you going to feign at the point that you experience your own mortality? And that's what you're just attempting to do. And again, I felt like I had like a master's degree in all this stuff. Uh, But I was surprised by the fact that the PJs could really get away with a lot, you know. Yeah. And again, I think that Air Force Special Operations is a little bit different than the others, just because the rest of the Air Force, they don't know a damn thing about ground combat. So they just kind of like the Tigers are in the cage, just keep throwing meat in, you know, just let (laughs) these guys do what they need to do to train and select their guys. And so they really kind of give, we're gonna look the other way approach. Whereas like other services, they wanna get involved you know, somewhat you know, politically with rank structure of what's going on and how it's happening. I think the Air Force is a little more like, well, you guys know what you're doing, just do it. And, and uh, the, on the user end of that, where the rubber meets the road is pretty brutal for the students that are going through it. You know, The attrition rate, I don't wanna bore people with the attrition rate numbers, but uh, it is a 90 you know failure rate of that course you know you have a hundred people start that and there's 10 people generally standing at the end of it and every one of those hundred men standing there say they won't quit and have been training for a significant amount of time to be there and so it's it's a pressure cooker of virtue it's a pressure cooker of athletic ability it's a pressure cooker of metaphysics. And again, I've always been attracted to that. I mean, to be very honest, when I went through pararescue selection, I enjoyed it. And uh, I got honor graduate out of uh, my pararescue indoctrination class and uh, received the Commandant's Award. It's basically like the leadership award from uh, the pararescue indoctrination training, which I, I absolutely, Covet, you know, I mean, whenever I graduated, that I was the team leader of guys, and, and I had the highest graduation class amount of guys graduate uh in the history of of Pair Rescue doc, And they the instructors really attributed that to my leadership within the team itself. So yeah. but I enjoyed it, you know, I really yeah. did enjoy it, and I think that I was comfortable in the space, you know, of being hazed to that level. And uh, i did enjoy that uh where the trouble came is when we showed up uh because once you're selected now you have to be trained and so we ended up going to to kirtland albuquerque new mexico kirtland air force base there and the pipeline because you want to take people that are these highly selected and you know people now you need to train them and you go through what's called the pipeline and that you go through every the most intense courses in the DoD, from Combat Diver Course, Halo uh, Operation, you know, Jump School, you know, normal Jump School, Seer School, which is uh, kind of like POW training, uh, to uh, land navigation, mountaineering, mountain rescue stuff, uh, and then at the end of that, you put it all together and do these very intense culminative exercises where you use all of those things and you work with other special operations entities to understand where you work and so this that's like a four-year process yeah And uh, my difficulty in where it became spiritual for me was in that process because now okay you've already trained and selected me you gave me you know the commandant's award and honor graduate out of those selection courses then you put me in this this space where you're just gonna treat me and these other guys like shit and you're not gonna teach us anything. And so it really became us versus them with these instructors. They couldn't really offer us too much metaphysically, uh, spiritually, Uh, there was no guidance, there was no mentorship that was really going on there. And so I felt that, again, I just kind of fell into that mentorship role with my team and we survived it and again what's interesting is all the guys that graduated pararescue school from that time they're at the most elite levels within pararescue now doing it, you know i yeah. mean i mean obviously i retired before my my friends and my peers there because i'd have 12 years of yeah i was gonna say you're older than most of them or them, you know and so uh it's really interesting to see them go through these now managerial roles where yeah. Uh, I just had these surreal experiences and, and attempted to listen to my gut through them and uh, to where the point uh, I became, a, I retired, like I said, two to three years ago. I've become a full-time artist and I wrote a book The again, through just synchronistic events and serendipity being what it is, uh, we're de- we are working hard right now developing the the book into a screenplay uh oh, wow. and this is all functioning at very high levels within the hollywood elite right now and so i'm yeah. excited about that and, and uh, but again it's just expression like i i'm really not trying to be in that space at all yeah. i'm just attempting to articulate my experiences and yeah. it's like the universe is is listening you
1: know yeah what uh you said something about you know just really kind of thriving in the pressure cooker of uh virtue right or th- those types of uh, experiences. What um, what do you do? What do you do now? Because I don't. I don't think that that ever goes away, right? Like,
2: yeah, that's 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 a heavy question. I uh, in that pressure cooker of virtue, I've attempted to. Well, I guess I should back up a little bit before I get into this. So, as a pararescueman, I had a, a very distinguished career one of the Valhalla's to show up to, uh, within pararescue is the Alaska team. Yeah, There's basically like four or five pararescue teams all over the country. And the Alaska team is by far the most, uh, you know, uh, active team in the world, you know, whereas these really daunting rescues that take place with, uh, say, there's a California team in San Francisco at Moffitt field there. They'll, fly out from there and do rescues out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, like thousands of miles in the middle of the Pacific. They'll take off from San Francisco, fly out open ocean and parachute into, you know, uh, anyone in distress in the middle of the ocean that no one else can get to. That happens, I think, on average, maybe say just roughly once a year. They also deploy to combat, uh, you know, once or twice a year as well. Uh, but just the civil mission that they do alone, uh, Alaska does that volume weekly. And so same amount of guys, but every week you're, you're jumping into plane crashes. Just because of g- the geography and the, the, the geographic isolation of Alaska, the terrain, the weather, and just the vastness, um, we would jump into plane crashes or fly helicopters into bear maulings once a week and so those and those distances are massive it's like saying i'm going to get in a plane in fort worth or dallas texas and i'm going to jump into a bear mauling in montana huh. and i'm going to do that once a week and so it was a very surreal world to live in uh but uh i did that for the past 15 years uh like i said no. We also, you know, you you do those civil missions like that, but we also deploy to combat. And when we deploy to combat, we support active combat that's taking place and we'll fly right into the middle of it and attempt to salvage, protect life. And so we're not like dust off or medevac. Like we literally, it is our like tactics and techniques and procedures. We fly right into the active firefight to get guys out. You know, if if you're shot in the chest or you know, you got your leg blown off by an RPG, you're you're only gonna live about an hour under the best emergency medical care. What has to be done is you have to get to a surgical team. And so we would fly right into the middle of it and just you know, get right into the the, the fist fight and attempt to get guys in those helicopters and get them out of there. And in 2010, I experienced significant Surreal combat with my team. I was in charge of a team of pararescuemen at the time and we had been deployed for, we were going to be deployed for six months. And it was like right at the fifth month that uh, significant combat happened to where we were overrun. Uh, it was, it was an absolutely overwhelming situation. Uh, we were overrun myself and another uh, combat rescue officer, which are the pararescue uh, officers, basically, and uh, we got hoisted in, and uh, it was a, a really difficult situation where helicopters got shot up, ran out of fuel, out of ammo, and they had to leave. We were overrun. We called in airstrikes on ourselves to martyr ourselves. It was hand-hand fighting. Like I said, just overrun, and uh, four guys died in my arms over that specific event, but we were able to save five of them and uh, we horsed those guys out. But that was, that was just one mission that I, I kind of spoke about there over an eight-day period. And it was eight yeah. days of, of that intensity that took place. And uh, immediately upon coming back from that, a very, very surreal event happened of basically an artist and a videographer named Casey Neistat, who's a YouTube blogger, uh, came to do this, documentary on tattooing special operations guys right after combat and they had no idea of what we had just experienced and that is a pretty naive idea yeah creative idea because the reality of that is grief-stricken people you know you're trying to tattoo grief-stricken men and so but we were all beside ourselves with just grief and horror and these guys wanted to tattoo us and so i was in the position to allow them to do that we had our own somewhat kind of secret isolated compound but we only had two or three days and then we had to go right back out to the same environment that i just mentioned so anyway they tattooed us it uh we created a pretty intense relationship together with those guys and uh i definitely consider those guys my mentors in a lot of ways now and i've developed very uh strong, intimate relationships with them, with their families and with with mine. And I feel very thankful, I guess, that that synchronicity happened. Like that Carl Jung, the philosopher, like he said that uh, we project synchronicity, like we make that up. So let's let's go back to the analogy of the car wreck, right? Like, well, that had to have happened for a reason, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So when things are overwhelming to us that we can't process, we force synchronicity or religion or spirituality into that equation to help our mortal minds understand or i guess accept things that happen yeah that experience was just too surreal to not only live through those those combat experiences but then uh be tattooed right after that That's really heavy weird stuff and yeah. i mean uh, so i've always been one to just allow things to change me and uh I was immediately attracted to the juju and the power of tattoo. And I've always been artistic, you know, throughout my life, drawing and painting, doing poetry, or just reading again, these esoteric indigenous culture wisdoms, you know? And so you your mother was artistic as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. She was uh, as hippie as she's, you know, she's still alive. She's doing good in Dallas, Texas. Uh, and, but she was just like this super hippie mom, you know, and, like she would go and paint in the backyard like oil painting and stuff kind of like topless or nude or whatever you know she's just a real cool mom and so i remember watching her paint as a kid and just it was just magic you know to see that bob ross shit happen. you know like (laughs) you know so it's like just to watch those things happen and be just so enticed or enthralled by the process of it you know and as a young kid i remember i would just draw like black sabbath album covers or dungeons and dragons like fantasy art like boris vallejo or you know it's all these cats you know all these really great you know great artists i would i would try to replicate their stuff with ballpoint pens and things like that and it was just really you know a really great outlet and i think that i really owe that to my mother you know you know trying to process the trauma of the things that i've experienced as a para or as a reconnaissance marine or even a young man trying to articulate those things through art, I think is a beautiful way of expression. And it's, it's truly like a way forward through, I guess, trying to process our lives. And I think that, you know, doing that now to add another layer, to do that in someone else's skin, that's heavy because now it's just, it's so metaphysical that you're dealing with a canvas that has an opinion. That you're yeah. dealing with this living, Entity that wants m- me to be this muse of expression for them, I just—I mean—I dove in, man. I dove in head yeah. first And uh, tattooing is not a medium that should be taken lightly, even though it is. You know, I mean, it's all whether it's just you know punk kids sticking poking each other, you know, in the basement of some crappy house,
1: <laughs> right?
2: You know, I mean, it, it, you know, there's there is juju. There's metaphysics involved in tattooing. And I, again, just like I was attracted to those Vietnam veterans heralding these stories of combat, I'm attracted to the juju, you know? And I think one of the takeaways is there is no magic without risk, whether that's combat, life, art, whatever it is. If If there is not risk in the process of what you're doing, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a profession, any endeavor, if it does not involve risk, there's no magic. And I think that uh, that is definitely the thread through that I've learned in my life to, I guess, embrace discomfort or embrace risk. Uh, and then if you add in virtue and selflessness into that, the, those ingredients all work. They all bake a really magnificent meal every time you do it. And, and yeah. uh, that's all easier said than done, though, because as human beings, we become complacent and lazy and we seek comfort and safety i think that though if if you just embrace the discomfort embrace the the you know the fear embrace the the risk uh in whatever capacity that might be i mean whether it's uh emotional vulnerability with a relationship that you have or if it's um you know however you feel that 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 resides in you, if you just step towards it a little bit, it's empowering and and that's that's living. I think that uh you know it's like there's there's all these quotes from special operations, one of them the s a s has and it's uh "He who dares wins and it's like you don't get anything without risk, and I think yeah. that uh if you want to save someone's life, if you want to have a more fulfilling life for yourself, it involves risk and you have to embrace that. Uh, I think that's the, I think the message, I think that I would want people to take away from my life or my experiences. And I, I, I try to pursue that in art. And obviously, risk in art is not mortal. You know, I'm not gonna die, but at the same time, <laughs> there is, it, right. it's much more of a emotional risk. You know, like, am I, the process that I'm using, is, is, it, is it true? You know, is it vulnerable? Is it real? And because, you know, you can look at something and you, like, you know, like, what is art? It's just this expression, but I think that the more vulnerable or the the riskier it is, the more powerful it is, you know? And I think I'm just attracted to that. You know, it's in meeting, uh, you know, the, the, the artists that I've got to meet through being open to those experiences like being tattooed in afghanistan right after those those uh traumatic experiences to you know i mean these i mean i mean meeting scott campbell and just understanding the power of art or what it means you know and and seeing those people see immense value in me like they're just like holy shit, man you know i met you under these circumstances but damn you know like you you're kind of a tsunami of of juju here and i just want to empower you and so i'm just like okay cool man you know so that it's helped me gain perspective and and uh to use the term you know i mean i i feel like art is allowing me to sail home to myself you know to find an expression of my experiences and and sail home kind of like homer's odyssey you know like homer if you don't know the the story of if the listeners don't know the, the story of homer's odyssey you know basically it's a it's a the greek story of of the battle of troy and odysseus and it's this parable story but it's really really about sailing home to ourselves you know it's it's he's trying to come home after sacking troy and, and being in these specific battles and there's the cyclops and the sirens and all these different things but it's a metaphysical story of attempting to sail home to yourself. You know, the castle is your own mind. You know, clear the suitors of the castle. You know, and I think that, you know, all those kind of sappy analogies like, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a, boat is not made, or a boat is safe in the harbor, but that's not what it was designed for, you know? Yeah. And so, go get out there, man. And you have to attempt to risk everything to save yourself you know and and uh there's great books that I've, I've really leaned on along the way one is the alchemist i really would would push yeah. your listeners to read the alchemist because it's just such a powerful simple parable yeah. about life and how to live you know it's like the gift is not in the treasure but in the journey to the treasure you know and so yeah i mean i'm just this busted up Special operations vet living way out here in Eagle River, Alaska. You know, I've got a great family. I'm still married to my high school sweetheart. My older son uh is a young protege of myself in the Marine Corps and, and my youngest son uh is uh he has he's got cerebral palsy and, and uh he's my best friend, man. We do everything together, you know, and, and uh it's it's just wonderful to, i guess to live life to see it through our children's eyes now you know and and attempt to ex- the experiences that we've been able to live through you know i mean cuz that's really the only value of it you know it's not me wearing a t-shirt or me selling a book or me trying to sell people to you know a movie that i'm making or something like that it's just it's really just uh, we are life aware of itself you know we are and we have to express our experiences you know those are the values but uh i hope that helps
1: <laughs> absolutely i could sit here uh for a few more hours and keep talking but i don't want to i want to respect your time and i know we're already over so i appreciate you uh sharing all of the stories and all of your wisdom it's been it is it's awesome um is alaska is it is, it, is that home for you are you gonna are you planning to stay up there or
2: Alaska is a love hate relationship you know yeah. i mean it uh, the summers are just so beautiful yeah. it's just so ridiculous but you have to earn them you know you got <laughs> yeah, <earn> to <them>. right <laughs> and it's even much more beautiful because the winter is so cold and so yeah. long i mean he, even we're here we're like we're mid april mid coronavirus you yep. know yep. pandemic and uh you know i mean alaska is really geographically separated from that but we've been locked down for like 35 days yeah i'm taking this time to really enjoy the time with my wife and my uh my youngest son you know we're just doing everything together but the weather here in alaska we call it breakup and so during breakup you have we've been you know for like six months it's been deep freeze and so you get temperatures that come come above uh freezing so it's almost like an ice box trying to thaw out like when you had that old ice box in the 70s it's just like over (laughs) frosted and you just got to drag it out in the garage and open (laughs) it up that's what alaska is like right now it's just this manky 30 degree just ice box trying to defrost and uh but uh yeah it's 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 going to be a beautiful summer uh i i like the the isolation of Alaska but I mean we're in a progressive world I mean everything's a plane flight away you know but uh man I mean what crazy times we live in with this with this pandemic and it's just a great time for reinvention for everybody to kind of reprioritize their lives and refocus on the things they want out of their time but uh yeah I mean it was a real pleasure to talk to you Nate yeah thank Uh, you I'm excited to to meet you and tattoo you when you come up here to Alaska I can't wait absolutely and uh yes yeah, so i'll be in touch for
1: sure with that and to, to line that up and um but yeah thank you thank you so much for coming on and and, and uh, being here appreciate it yeah thanks nate have let's a good go.
2: day let's go
0: let's go in 05 and 06 i deployed to kuwait i used to wait every day for them to say nature going home i missed my life missed my wife 15 months she was all alone